Amela Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Video games allow us to have fun and play with other people around the world. Miriam Maguire, senior vice president of engineering at Skills, explained different types of video games and how they can be played competitively. We talked about what esports are and examples and characteristics of popular games. Miriam also explained engineering challenges around building an esports platform and how to tackle them. We also talked about a path to a leadership role and important skills to develop. I'm here at Skills with Miriam Aguirre, Senior Vice President of Engineering. Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to talk about esports and engineering and leadership. But before we get into that, I want to begin with your background. You came to the U.S. as an immigrant when you were a child. And since you were little, you've mentioned you liked math. Can you talk about this time growing up in the United States? Yeah, I think I didn't really quite piece this together until I was much older. But growing up in the U.S. and not having learned English until after I'd been in school for a while, it's really tough to communicate. And uh, math was one of the areas where even if you don't speak the language, you can do pretty well. And so I kind of gravitated towards that. And I found English to be incredibly difficult for many years, even through high school, actually, just being from, you know, coming from a deficient Uh, standpoint on that. Like my parents didn't speak English. No one at home spoke English. The first intro that I got into English was uh, cartoons. <laughs> so growing up watching TV and trying to learn, you know, what was going on and with so many cultural references that I didn't understand, so many things that people, you know, talked about or songs that they sang that I just like, I don't, what is a hokey pokey? I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> and it's tough being like a, a someone in kindergarten, like everyone just jumps into a song and dance and you're like, uh, what the hell is happening? <laughs> so if you feel like an outsider from day one and you, it doesn't go away for a very long time for most people sometimes never I don't think my parents ever felt like really welcomed into this country and I don't think that they feel like this is home for them even though they've lived the majority of their lives here now do you still sometimes feel like an outsider or has it gotten better for me I think because I spent only about five six years in Mexico I consider the U.S. my home and yeah we're talking about some of those barriers initially was the language barrier as well as the cultural one then you're immersed in math and you go on to study at, at MIT which is a really good engineering school one of the best ones yeah can you talk about some of the highlights of your experience here yeah absolutely and uh, you know a, a wonderful shout out to a teacher that really cared in when I was in high school to that encouraged me to apply to, to MIT. I hadn't planned on going to college at all. You know, my family comes from a, a world of as soon as you're old enough, you get a job and you start contributing to the family. And I figured I would just do that after high school. But she really pushed me to apply to schools. And I was like, well, I don't think I can afford that. I'm like, I'm certainly not going to ask my parents for, for money to do that. Even just the applications themselves were like 50 bucks back then. I don't know how much they are now. But that felt like asking my parents for a ton of money. So she found ways to kind of uh, get me uh, applications so that I could uh, get some funds to, to do those things and applied to MIT. And I got in on early admissions and they offered me a chance to go visit the campus. And it might as well have been another world. Like That could have been Mars uh, for all I know. And uh, I, I just felt at that point in time, like there's so little that I know about the world 
that I couldn't pass up a chance like this to put myself in a situation where, once again, I kind of didn't know anything of what was going on. The weather was so different, the the city itself so different than what I had learned in L.A. that I definitely felt like I needed to experience it and uh, see it firsthand, see many things like that firsthand in order to continue to like, learn and grow as a person. And initially, I think you were going to study aerospace or something else. Can you talk about... That was fun. I was interested in uh, aeronautics and aerospace when I was young, and MIT had a pretty good department for that. So, you know, when I was checking out their brochures, I was pretty excited to go on campus and, like, go, uh, go to this department meeting. And they sat us all down, and they're like, okay... Well, the aerospace industry isn't doing really well. I don't think you guys should continue to major in this uh, study. And uh, why don't you guys check out computer science? <laughs> so they kind of steered us towards uh, computer science. And fortunately, a lot of the material was pretty similar. When I took a programming class, uh, the first one was in C. And I got hooked right away. I was like, oh, this is amazing. You can just tell a thing really simply what to do. And then it just does that thing. And it does it as many times as you want it to flawlessly. And to me, that seemed really powerful, like a... A, a different way to communicate with the world and one that was at least at the time felt within my grasp you know it wasn't like a tricky thing it wasn't a thing that it, I was starting from a different point than everyone else it's like yeah there's only one way to talk to computer yeah <laughs> and it's uh, everyone follows the same formula was this your first exposure to programming in college it really was I mean we had uh, those programming calculators in high school where you could kind of you know do those weird things you do as a high school person but sometimes you may not realize at least me that that you programming it could be like oh to get the calculator to like I had one of those but I didn't yeah. think oh I'm programming yeah exactly yeah. it's like oh I'm, I'm writing this function to do this yeah. thing to like yeah. you know I don't know even if you're doing something weird like yeah. just making fun of someone in class or something you're doing the things you're creating an algorithm but you don't call it that yeah exactly I want to talk now about esports since you work at skills and it's a mobile esports platform can you explain what are esports So we consider esports to be uh, electronic competitions centered around uh, video games. When you think about uh, chess, uh, the game itself, it's something you can play in your living room. But when you talk about a competition or centered around chess, uh, that becomes more like a sport, right? Like golf and, and all those other games that become sports. When you introduce things like the competition tournaments and spectators or sponsors, it becomes a little bit more than just the game. And so when we think about esports, it's the same thing centered around uh, video game content. What are some examples of esports? Some big examples that people will probably recognize are like Dota and League of Legends, Overwatch recently on like cable TV. Those are kind of the most spectator friendly uh, esports out there. But when we think about competition, I, I'm sure tons of people have played Words with Friends or Candy Crush against their friends, right? That really is a much more, uh, it's kind of like a the spectrum between T-ball and, and, you know, the MLB. It's like, yeah, lots of people play in these recreational leagues. But when you talk about pros, it's a very small amount. Mm -hmm. of people. So you're talking about games that are friendly to watch and others that might be just you and the person you're playing with, right? Not just friendly to watch. You and your cousin playing basketball in your driveway. You're playing basketball, right? You're not in the NBA, but you're playing basketball. So when we think about uh, video games and esports, it's similar. There's the casual aspect. There's the very accessible and broadly appealing aspect. And then there's the pros. And the pros are uh, a very small portion of the population, as you would expect. But for the most part, you know, we, we think a lot of these games that are fun to play could become the next big esport. In your opinion, what are some of the characteristics that make a good video game? 
Well, it depends on what you're looking for, but I love games that have a really good story, a really good character development, and allow me to customize the character and the experience to the things that I care about. I think uh, when you think about esports, it's a different aspect of a video game. So, like, you usually have a campaign mode when you're playing through a story as a main character, but then you take that character and you're like, you know what? I feel like I'm really good at X, Y, Z. How would you actually know unless you were able to to compete with someone doing those exact same activities. And that allows you to do that, right? It allows you to take a character from a some sort of story, develop them and hone some skills and then apply them to some other activity. And so for me, I like those kinds of games where you, you have those uh, like first person type shooters that you play in a campaign mode yourself, but then you can go and play against your friends with those same characters. Can you explain what skills consist of in terms of this mobile experience? Yeah. It's kind of a, an accelerator for your mobile game uh, where we've uh, essentially created a platform that systematizes a lot of these components that you would need to make your video game into an eSport so that everyone doesn't have to reinvent the wheel every single time, right? Uh, the content creators, the people who make video games, are really good at creating content. They shouldn't also have to be good at deploying in the cloud, at running, you know, live ops, at tuning player matching. Like, we've got essentially specialists in all of those areas that we then provide as a service to any game that wants to try this platform out. So it saves time and it, it reduces the amount of risk that gets spent into developing new games. You can try and plug in our platform to your game, existing game or new game, and it should cut down the development time and the time to market by allowing you to kind of leverage the stuff that we've already built and spent years tuning so you don't have to start from zero. When I was researching for this interview, I saw one of the areas you've also worked in is in the cheating and fraudulent activity space. For sure. Can you uh, give some ideas of what happens here? Yeah, sometimes when you create a competition and the main prize is money, it kind of uh, uh, brings out the bad in some folks, right? And so they try and find ways that are outside of the scope of the game to win that money. And so we've detected, uh, well, we've created systems that kind of detect anomalies, both in scoring behavior and other kinds of uh, player patterns that alert us to some suspicious activity. And depending on the severity of that activity, we either respond automatically or, you know, involve a human to kind of uh, assess the situation further. But we've essentially uh, systematized that uh, fraud and cheat detection and uh, kind of assign severity levels to it and then involve either humans or other bots to ban or uh, quarantine players to help us kind of uh, keep the system fair. That's one of the, the main pieces of the system where we believe in fairness and our job as the digital referee here is to ensure there's fairness is to kind of remove those users from the population and you know whatever the severity of action we need to take we'll take mm -hmm. another area here is in terms of data visualizations and insights in order to allow people to make quicker decisions can you give some examples of decisions that you might be able to make based on, you know, a visualization. Absolutely. I think uh, when we look at a player profile, there are some things that our customer advocacy uh, folks want to see when they are when they're determining, hey, should I give this player a refund? It's like, oh, maybe you want to know how many refunds they've gotten in the last few days or how many of the matches they're like uh, scoring uh, really low or poorly. Uh, does it look like it's on purpose? And in order for a person to be able to see that, the fastest way is through visualization. They, you're getting a, a human to read a, a stream of data is just not going to be good. But kind of uh, laying out those patterns in a graph format uh, really helps them kind of make that assessment very quickly. And, you know, if especially if it's low risk and we can create like a little 
line bar that says, you know, where, where we think the low risk and high risk are, they can quickly check and see, oh yeah, this person's consistently under the low risk bar for sure. Give them the refund. They deserve it. Or this person seems to be doing something fishy. We should investigate further. Maybe we get them on the phone and assess the situation more carefully. But for humans, you really want to give them that information in a way they can consume it the best. And that's usually in a graph form. I see. And this can also be considered a type of fraud, right? If there's a person just asking for refunds, maybe. They try all sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have to continue to stay ahead of it. But you can imagine people are very, very creative, right? People are very creative beings. They're going to try and problem solve. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And in terms of additional tools for developers, for example, to integrate with skills and facilitate the whole game development process. Can you give more examples of? We want to essentially focus on what KPIs we think would matter to them and send it back to them. So for example, if I'm a person who uh, made a game, I might be interested in how much my, my player base likes the game, right? How engaged are they? Okay. And so we've got a you know a visualization for them around like how many tournaments per player are, are getting played. And what they should expect would be a system average, right? So if uh, if my game, uh, people are playing 20 tournaments a day and the system average is 10. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm thinking this is twice as good as the system average. Uh, same with retention, you know, like some games you p play and you pick up and you love, but you put them down right away and you move on to something else. And, and you know, the depth of the game might be something that I care about or improving. Uh, so I'd want to know, like, how long am I retaining players for on average? And, you know, what are some of the expectations around what other games in this genre are doing to know whether I'm, I'm doing a, a good enough job there or if I should focus my next development cycle on, like, making improvements to help retain players. I see. And a platform like Skills provides guidance for people that create games to start thinking about those metrics? We outline the KPIs for them. I think we could do a lot more in terms of like here are some best practices for when you're seeing data look like this what are some of the action items that you could follow up on but we do have a managed account teams for so for our enterprise deals we do kind of provide more support and guidance and give them like hey here are some like ideas for how to make your game a little bit more involved or simplify the scoring or you know tell a better story and for them we do provide you know pretty detailed design documents to help the developer make changes and improvements to the game. In another interview that you did, you mentioned, I'm just going to quote from that, you said, I would definitely focus on softer skills earlier. So I'm sort of now shifting to, you know, the leadership roles that you've had. Can you expand on this thought that you had? Absolutely. And the first thing I want to correct is I don't actually think they're soft. I feel like they're extremely difficult. If they were really soft, then everyone would have them. Yeah. But in order to convey a point, uh, I think that's what they're generally known as. And so that's why I said it that way. But not easy. Communication is actually one of the most important skills a person can learn. And uh, when I think about it, if I, if I really think about it for a long time, most problems end up being communication problems. And you're not going to be able to design systems that solve problems if you fundamentally don't understand the root of the problem. A lot of the times a solution could be like, this person needs to talk to that person, not, you know, we should build a 10,000 point system to help two people in the company yeah. agree and align on prioritization. And so I, I do feel like uh, properly communicating things, understanding are like two very important skills for, for almost any role. 
But in particular engineers, we tend to just jump into designing solutions without fully understanding. And no matter how good of a programmer we are, we're just not going to solve real problems that way. <laughs> yes, you can design a system that does X, Y, Z. But at the end of the day, if, you know, Sally doesn't want to talk to Mary, <laughs> it doesn't matter what sort of system you implemented. They're not going to talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. And as a junior engineer, how would you start going about thinking of improving the skills? One of the best ways I've seen us kind of get um, engineers to collaborate a little bit more cross-functionally is to get involved in bugs, and especially bugs reported by a business team, to really understand the, the root of that problem and why they think it's a problem and, you know, work a little bit with product to understand why they built a thing the way they built it, and then to the engineer that implemented why they made certain decisions, uh, technical decisions. That's been one of the best ways we've seen where, like, someone really feels like they're doing a little bit of detection work and a lot of that involves talking to people and once they understand a real a real problem like that then they can go about proposing a, a, a fix and then communicating the fix to the the proper parties and that's one of the best ways to kind of uh, get an engineer to you know still topically improve their skill set while working on a, an actual technical challenge exactly and you started as a individual contributor and then shifted to a leadership role what were some of the reasons why you chose this I think at some point everyone in their careers comes to a fork in the road where they have to decide for themselves what they're going to focus on. And for me, I had enough frustrations with how I see work was being managed and the things we were prioritizing, kind of the how we were doing things that bugged me that I felt like if I'm really going to help this organization level up, it's not going to be by doing more, by writing more lines of code. There's only so many lines of code I can personally write. But if I change how some of these processes work, I thought I could help the department be a little bit more organized, be a little bit more nimble, uh, focus on the right things and reward the right behaviors. Like I, I did feel uh, really strongly that you can do tech right, you still can do tech right, and uh, it just takes a, a shift in leadership. Part of leading a team involves delegating activities. What does it mean to to delegate effectively, or in your opinion, what are some ways to do this? Absolutely. Uh, delegation is super important for scaling, and I fundamentally believe that if you've properly set up your team under you, that having the same level of information, understanding the business priorities and the business values, every single person should be able to make the same decision, right? And so all it comes down to is ensuring that they understand the business priorities. And then two, that we've broken out clearly who owns what. And with that uh, level of organization, then you should feel like you can trust your team to get their piece of what the deliverable is done And if they can't, that they would be communicating to you, why not? Or when, the, if there's a delay. But presumably, delegation is mostly about communication. Yeah. Back to our uh, yeah, exactly. core skill. <laughs> That's what I was noticing. And also that you are giving them more tools to help them make decisions themselves if they understand the business value and the priorities. Absolutely. They should all be making the exact same decision, right? I'm just saying, hey the business met and here is what they decided are the priorities for the business like there shouldn't be a question around that and they, there might be there might be some like why here and there and ideally we're providing those whys mm -hmm. and the reason we want to provide those whys is that 
when we're not around to help them make the next decision, they can make the right next decision because they understand fundamentally what we're trying to accomplish. And if you empower people with that information and you empower them with the list of priorities and the business values, which we've all hopefully uh, memorized by now, but if they have that decision-making framework, ideally they're making the exact same decisions that I would be making. And so my job should, I should be trying to make my job redundant every single day. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about delegation. Now I want to talk about managing conflict. How do you try to manage conflict? Again, a lot of it just has to be communication. It depends on the source of the conflict. It might be where two departments have conflicting priorities, and that does happen. And it might be fine to just say, hey, as the business, we've decided to prioritize this in one, two, three order. You're talking about item three. They're talking about item one. I absolutely would expect there to be conflict, but let's try and stick to the what the business has said is the priority order of things, which does put someone you know in a bit of a, a, f- a frustrating situation where you're working on item number three. But ideally, you know, you can problem solve that yourself and say, well, how do I get them? do number one quicker so that I can get my item done as well. And that's kind of why we have to have that, you know, top-down priority list uh, so that people know where the resources are going and that there shouldn't be conflict as to whether, you know, one versus three. It's like, no, it's very clearly laid out for you. (laughs) One is one. Uh, Until that one's done, it, it doesn't stop being number one. To you, what does it mean to have a culture of high-performance engineers? What does that look like? It looks a lot like a a system with a lot of accountability. Uh, So expectations should be clear for everyone, and uh, systems of accountability should be present, and uh, ways to escalate need to be there as well. So if I have a problem, if I'm expected to hit a, a timeline, and I don't have the right resources, or I don't understand what we're trying to build, or there's some other thing blocking me from getting my job done, the expectation would be that you're bubbling that up and that you're letting your pod lead know or the product manager or whomever is the next level of escalation needs to know. So once you've communicated that you actually can't hit a timeline or some goal and the reason why, that other people now own that, and are trying to unblock you. And that would be my expectation, that people understand what is needed from them. And if they can't get that done, they're communicating why, and to the right people, trying to get themselves unblocked. And in terms of work-life balance, how do you make sure you know the engineers have that and they're not overworked? I love planning. I think if we do a really good job at planning, we aren't putting ourselves in a bad situation. And so when we are in a bad situation, for example, someone worked a 60-hour week, I see that as a failure. And I want us to focus on better planning for the following week. So improving your planning and estimation skills early career will save you a lot of headaches later on. But in order to be able to do really good planning, you really have to understand, you break down a big task into what are all the parts of that task and where are there risks around dependencies from others and trying to do a good job of like, they're not really padding, but you're building in time for someone to get back to you on something so that you don't put yourself in a bad situation. I see. Before we finish, I want to talk a bit about diversity inclusion, particularly in the gaming industry. Yeah. Can you give some context of it? I mean, hopefully we don't have to talk about this for many more years, but Gamergate was a, a real low point in uh, in gaming history. The, the targeted harassment of women in gaming is just uh unbelievably lame and obviously needs to stop but you know when I think about um, publishers like uh, JK Rowling 
and thinking about a world without a Harry Potter, it, so many of us would be so sad, right? We need to make this a place that's fair. We need to make sure that women's contributions can actually show up in our lives and uh, that we recognize the, the right people for the right things. And uh, just blanket exclusion because they're women is idiotic. The trolls are, are pretty powerful when they have you know automated harassment bots. We really need to get the social media platforms to, to do their part in holding uh, people accountable. But I do think that fundamentally, you know, we're making progress and it's headed in the right direction. But things like this are like pretty demoralizing for women in the industry and, and no surprise why they leave in droves. We just have to do better and we have to hold people accountable and open the door for people to return or for new generations to join. And in terms of things that, you know, companies that work in the gaming industry that they can think about or start to adopt, do you have some examples? I think the Parity Pledge is a, a really awesome place to start. If you're already a company that, you know, hasn't been hiring as many women, especially in, in departments where you feel like, hey, there's just no there's just no diversity here. If your your team isn't diverse, your products are not going to be diverse. Uh, you're going to end up excluding customers. It's hitting the bottom line. So it's not just the right thing to do. It's also the business pragmatic thing to do. Yeah. But uh, I, I feel like uh, improving, uh, obviously holding people accountable to some code of standard for, for how you behave in a corporation. Once you fix any corporate ethics problems, you can start fixing uh, recruiting and hiring. And ideally with those two things in place, uh, you're able to retain and empower more women onto the team, which will be a uh, kind of a self-fulfilling uh, cycle. We're talking about hiring and then sometimes in the hiring processes where we can lose candidates through bias or other things. And I know you've worked on tests for interview screens that focus on evaluating core engineering skills. Can you give some examples of the skills that can be evaluated? Yeah, we carefully broke them out several pieces of our engineering process into discrete panels. So for example, we have one where we just test you on your programming language and you get to pick which one you, you want to be tested on. The next one is on designing and whiteboarding and that's a pretty collaborative exercise. So it's not like a write code on the on the on the board. It's like no we, we expect this to be a like a system design type of problem. And then a, a separate hiring manager panel. And so what we wanted to do in the first two technical panels is like none of the people conducting those are allowed to, to comment on culture fit or any other thing that isn't relevant to the actual technical topic. And by separating those two things, you've now made it clear to engineers that their role in the assessment of a candidate isn't as a, do I want this person on this team? It's a, is this person able to code in Java? Is this person able to make a reasonable design given a certain set of uh, requirements, right? And once we know a person is technically qualified for a role, then uh, we treat them uh, differently uh, depending on where they're headed. And the hiring managers then are, are doing a little bit more around like, hey, does this seem like an environment you'd like working in and making sure that there's alignment on both sides? Not everyone is ready for a startup. Yeah. But, you know, once we've aligned on role expectations, you know, what it's like working here, expectations around working from home and, and all of that, we move forward on to the, like, offer stages of the of the process. But separating those two things out, I think, is fundamental to making sure that you have a fair process. And uh, no one person is really saying yay, nay, uh, upstream what they're doing skill assessment, they're just letting you know whether this person has this skill or not. 
And that, I think, has helped quite a bit to focus the interviews and, and make them a little bit more productive, yeah. in my opinion. And also, you know, the feedback is less vague. There's no like, oh, I don't know if this person would be good to work here. It's like, why did you just say that? That yeah. doesn't make any sense. Because sometimes even if they do solve the algorithm and everything, then it, it could be like, I don't think they're a fit for the team. It's like, that, you're not allowed to comment on that. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Like, which part of the algorithm did they not get, right? Like, yeah. not good at math. Yeah. Okay, what kind of math? Yeah. <laughs> Is that important? Yes, definitely. Well, Miriam, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks.